Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl, and it is Monday, May 17th. On today's show, sports are eternally in flux. Is it possible to find balance between the past and the future of a game? That's coming at you on the other side of an ad from our presenting sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading and you always call Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. My friends, we have an incredible week of sports in front of us. Stanley Cup playoffs have just started. We're two days in, and all four games have been A-plus spectacular. The NBA play-in games begin tomorrow, and the day after that, we have Warriors against Lakers for the number seven seed. Uh, That's an A-plus scenario. We have the PGA Championship in golf, one of four majors taking place this weekend. Uh, Things are looking up when it comes to sports and everything that's happening. And so I say all this, and because I'm a person who likes to zig when others zag, we're going to start today's show by talking about baseball, the, the sport that is not in the discussion for this week, and deservedly so in some ways. Uh, I, I came across an article the other day that really caught my interest, and we're going to start today's show with a quote from it. It's from Jeff Passan of ESPN. Uh, And here's a quote from him. The state of baseball is eternally in flux. It's subject to the whims of the athletes who play the game, the billionaires who run it, the technocrats who populate front offices, the analysts foraging for the slightest advantage, the scientists exploring unseen frontiers, the lawyers tasked with keeping it afloat, the doctors who perpetually put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and especially the fans whose divergent passions and desires make striking a perfect balance between the game's history and future a near impossibility, end quote. So today's show is partially about baseball, but it's partially about change and how sports constantly evolve, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But that line, eternally in flux, that applies to every single sport and how the powers that be within each sport choose to embrace the change, that structures football or basketball or hockey or baseball moving forward, and that's how sports exist in present day. So it's kind of overwhelming when you think of all these things that go into a sport beyond just the players that we watch on the screen or live, you know, the front offices, the analysts who are crunching numbers behind the scenes, the doctors, all this stuff. There's so many things that go into a sport. And so there's so many different motivations and desires from each of those different areas. And trying to combine those into something that makes sense, that's really hard to do. At the very end, Passan references fans and their divergent passions and desires. Something that me as a fan, I'm very privy to. I recorded an episode about two weeks ago. The title is The Way Things Were. And it's about my own relationship to college football. And my own desires and passions for that sport, something that I've followed all my life. And within the last five years or so, 
there's been a noticeable branch from what it was into what it is. And I'm struggling with trying to make sense of that. Uh, the past is what is really meaningful to me when it comes to college football. And the future of the sport is not going to be that. And so how do you rectify that on an individual level? For me, that's really hard to do with college football, as I explained in that episode. And if you're the sport itself, how do you take each individual fan who comes to the table with very different passions and desires, how do you take that and combine it into something that every single person wants and celebrates and loves? That is almost impossible to do. So baseball is going through this probably more so than any sport. I think football and basketball and even hockey, they're in a pretty good place in the state of evolution. And they're introducing things into their sports, or they have within the recent past, that have improved the product. And most people agree with those things. Baseball is in this limbo where they're struggling to find their way between that past, the old school baseball, the, the really uh, soulful, nostalgic connection that sports has that is really cool. You know, With baseball, that's sitting in the crowd, filling in your own scorecard. It's following the numbers over the course of a 162-game regular season and having these really hard benchmarks that you know what they mean. You batted 400 in a season. You hit over 50 home runs in a season. There's numbers that go into baseball that are really meaningful strictly because of how the regular season is structured. And that ties into that soulful, nostalgic past. Sitting and watching it with your family or even listening on the radio way back in the day. Those are all things that tie baseball together. And yet in present day, it's kind of a very different experience. It's that limbo that I'm talking about that in part comes from this cold rise of analytics and how baseball has turned into such a numbers game. It's gone so far beyond this, this tie into the 162 regular season games and the numbers that we associate with it. We're down into the 100th level of this number is meaningful and we're going to pinpoint how it's meaningful to the team. And now baseball has turned into a sport that it's either a home run or it's a lot of strikeouts. And there's not a lot else that goes into a game besides that. There's not the old bunting of the past or the base running, the stealing of bases and all those kinds of things. It's a very different sport in present day from what it was in the past. So we get to the impossible part of this equation which is finding a balance between past and future, knowing that the soul of a sport is very different depending on the person who consumes it. Very different list of passions and desires. How do you make sense of that? So I'll bring another sport into the fray, golf, another sport that I really like that is going through a similar transition, which is finding that balance between past and future. And they're doing it to mixed results. They're trying to grow the game. They've started that hashtag and it's partially just people make fun of it because golf has a way of stepping on their own toes and not fully comprehending what it is to be a normal human being. Golf struggles with that. It comes from a very stodgy past. The country clubs, the button-ups, the exclusion of people who don't have enough money to come and play the game. That's the past of golf. So this Grow the Game movement, it's trying to exist in direct opposite to that. It's 
trying to introduce this game that has a lot of really beautiful aspects and a lot of draws for anybody who likes athleticism and challenging yourself and, and those things that we tie into sports. It's trying to introduce that to everybody and say, hey, now we want to welcome people with open arms. We want to be the opposite of what we were in the past. And again, they're doing that to mixed results. They're changing some of the rules to try to bring it from that archaic past into a, a more recognizable future that a common person could watch golf and go, I kind of understand what's happening. In the past, you couldn't tap down a spike mark on a green. You couldn't repair someone else's spike mark if you were putting through it because that's just how the rule had always been. And golf is something that really struggles to let go of things that exist in the past, even if they make no sense. Some bozo came up with a rule 100 years ago And it doesn't matter if it makes no sense in the context of today's world. Golf wants to hold on to those things because on one hand, history ties a sport together and it makes it meaningful. But on the other hand, there are certain things that come from the past that might not have that same kind of meaning. So you got to find a balance between those things. So you say, we're going to take away this rule. Now you can tap down a spike mark and a common person hears that and goes, well, yeah, that makes sense. Why could you not do that? Someone else does something to a green and you have no control over that thing. And yet you could possibly be penalized because you're putting through it and it hits a spike mark and bounces it the wrong way. And now you missed a putt because somebody rubbed their foot joy sneaker in the wrong way on the green. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Why could you not leave the pin in while putting in the past if you wanted to? You have a six inch putt that you wanted to tap in and you just want to go hit it with the pin in. In the past, that was a penalty if you putted with the pin in. And so a couple of years ago, they say, all right, let's take that away. That doesn't really make any sense in the context of today's game. Uh, pace of play. That's becoming a big talking point within the world of golf. This is something that needs to change on an amateur level and on a professional level. These rounds shouldn't be taking five hours. People should be cognizant of they're on a course where other people are also on it. And you can't take as much time as you want to do this thing. You can't just sit there for an hour trying to decide what the wind is doing and what iron you should hit, and oh no, wait, maybe the wind's shifting. Like You need to be aware that this is a course that other people are on, and you can't be holding them up. That's something that golf is still trying to come to grips with. They're professing it on an amateur level, and they're professing it on a professional level, but not really doing a normal job at enforcing it on a professional level. So it's trying to find that balance. You know, One of the only things that Soccer, a sport that I don't really care to watch, brings to the table is clearly defined pace of play, which strangely enough is very important. You know exactly how much time you're in for. It's a 45-minute half, and then you add in a couple minutes of stoppage time, and then the exact same thing on the other side. And it's a very solid amount of time you can block out to know that you're going to watch this game and enjoy it, and then you're done. That is, There's a lot of value that goes into that. And baseball is going through that struggle as well, which I'm going to get into in a second. When I think of golf and this struggle between past and future and how do you find the balance between it, nobody probably symbolizes this more in present day than Bryson DeChambeau, the the big meat house robot who's pumped himself up on protein shakes, if you believe what he says. And he's gone into his lab and he's got all these array of track men and he's swinging 3 million miles an hour day and night and huffing and puffing and grunting and groaning. 
And he's really created this kind of incredible career arc for himself, where he was this little scrawny doofus guy coming out of SMU when he joined the tour. And now he's this big, beefy robot man. He believes that golf is complete science, and he's going to master that science, and he can predict literally everything that's going to happen. And so if he knows what's coming his way, and he's practiced it enough over and over within his, his quote-unquote lab, then he'll be prepared for any situation within the game of golf. And this, direct, this exists in direct contradiction to the golf is art crowd. A crowd that I am part of, that I really like about the game of golf, that like golf at its highest level is not knowable. And so you kind of take what comes your way, and then you create art from whatever is given to you. The wind blows a certain way, and you go, okay, I wasn't preparing for this today, but because I have all the tools in my tool bag, I'm going to go with the flow today. Now I'm, I'm shaping these gorgeous shots with the wind, and now I'm shaping them against the wind. And around the greens, you know, on certain courses when they're firmer and they're faster, it takes a lot of, of skill and ingenuity to come up with how you're going to play specific shots. Are you going to play a bump and run into a hill? Are you going to try and play a flop over it? All of these things tie into the golf is art crowd, something that we tie into some of the greater players in the past. You know, Tiger Woods comes from that realm where one of the greatest ball strikers of all time, he's shaping all these shots depending on what the situation demands. He's hitting huge cuts around a tree or a huge draw over a lake, and he could have and do anything depending on the situation because he was willing to just go with the flow. And DeChambeau is the opposite of that. It's all power, and it's all just, I'm going to come in with this one shot, this very powerful swing, and I'm going to hammer it over and over and over, and I'm going to beat courses into submission with my power and my length. And then when I get to greens, um, to his credit, like he's found a really, really good way of putting. He's embraced the arm lock, and he's turned into one of the better putters in the world by locking his putter to his arm and practicing it over and over, and that's how his game is built. The knowability of the arm lock and the knowability that no matter what course I'm playing, I can bring unlimited power and it doesn't matter if I hit fairways or where I hit it. I'm just going to be so far in front of everybody that I will have an advantage coming into a green. It's how we won a U.S. Open last year, which the setup on those is usually catered towards people with length and they grow out the rough. And if you're hitting from 120 yards out of the rough into a green rather than 210 yards out of the rough into a green... That is an advantage that is almost incomprehensible. And DeChambeau, he's embraced that, and he's built a game on that. And to his credit, something that I really like about the way he approaches golf, he's willing to think outside the box, which is partially, strangely enough, it's more tied into the golf is art crowd rather than the golf is science crowd. But he embraces the idea that, hey, I'm willing to try anything. And if I think it's an avenue to success, then I'm going to go all in on that. Thinking outside the box is not always embraced within the world of golf. Uh, in the past, people think this is a specific way that you have to swing the golf club. And DeChambeau is one of many players on tour showing us that's not really true. You have to be in a very specific place at impact, 
Other than that, how you get there, it's kind of up to you. As long as you can swing 3 million times and perfect whatever your actual swing is, all that really matters is how you are on the ball at impact. And DeChambeau has thought outside the box when it comes to a lot of different things. And so he says, I'm going to beef up. All right, I'm going all in on that. I'm going to lift weights all during quarantine and drink protein all day. And I'm going to come back and just hit the ball 30 yards further than I used to. And my club head speed is going to be off the charts. And, oh, I think this arm lock putter is good and beneficial. All right, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to practice it day and night. And I'm going to turn from an average putter into one of the very best in the world. That thinking outside the box is great and something that I wish more golfers at the professional level would incorporate. But more importantly, what I wish golf would incorporate more is a mindset, which is this is a sport that is about exploration and it's about learning things about yourself in whatever ways you can. And so thinking outside the box, that's great. That ties into that. However, this balance between past and future when it comes to DeChambeau. He's built his game in a specific way that concentrates on how the PGA Tour sets up courses in a very similar manner. A manner that favors no ability. The greens are going to be softer. And so when you hit shots in, you know where they're going to be. You know they're going to stop pretty quickly and you can gauge pretty easily where your ball is going to be within a certain circle. And that, for me, doesn't produce the funnest version of watching golf because part of golf is a knowability. It's having firmer and faster course conditions and setting a course up in a way that does reward the very best players in the field for playing a game that is cerebral and also skillful. Something that the uh, PGA Tour course setups are not really about in present day. They're more about that crash and bash power style game and you don't really have to think your way through a course and you don't really have to shape shots in certain ways if you can just bash the ball far and then hack your wedges onto the green you can be really successful doing that and so some fans feel how I feel they wish that "Mm, I wish you would stress all portions of everybody's games and make tournaments set up in a way that you can succeed with a variety of different skill sets. That's the most interesting part of golf. When you can have a little pea shooter who can succeed because he's skillful around the greens and you can have a big brute like DeChambeau succeed because he has that power and because he putts well, and you can have everything in between. You can have a long iron striker who's, who can stay afloat like a Colin Morikawa because he's so good in that area. That's what golf should be. In my opinion, a lot of people agree. And some like this new version of the sport. They like the raw power and they go, this is really cool watching DeChambeau just hammer these huge drives and watching Dustin Johnson do the same. And I like where the future is headed and I like that this is what the sport is. Every fan brings different desires and passions to the table. It's part of what makes this entire discussion very interesting. And it's also part of what makes it for when you look through the eyes of the sport itself, it makes it really hard to know what the future of your sport should be. It makes it really hard to find a balance between all of these different ideas and viewpoints. So I'm going to go back to a quote from Jeff Passan when it comes to baseball in its present day, that middle ground between the past and the future. Its present is a mismatch. 
a historically great array of young talent unleashed in how it celebrates itself, but hamstrung by the game becoming too smart, too efficient, and consequently, too plotting. There are levers to pull that could free the game from the weights dragging it down. And the fear that doing so would alienate the core fan at the expense of the hypothetical one. The past and the future intersect in the present. And baseball's present is confusing. Exquisite players playing a fractured game. End quote. So it's kind of the idea that if you try to please all parties, you please none. You're pulling a little bit here and and a little bit there. But nobody is really satisfied because they go, "Mm, 15% of that I like, but most of it I don't. And I, I really understand this. Because in the sport of ice hockey, which I am a core fan and I love passionately and have loved my whole life, there's a constant push and pull between that line that Passan has, the alienating the core fan at the expense of the hypothetical one. How, as a niche sport, do you encourage people who are not fans of your sport to come in and view it? And what does that mean for the fans that are already really passionate about your sport and are there and love it for what it is? So when I'm having this discussion in hockey terms, people know that I'm a huge hockey fan and they'll come to me and they'll say, well, hockey, I don't really get it, but you know, here's some things that I think would make it cooler. And everybody has their different opinions. And they'll go, why don't they just make the goals bigger so there are more goals? And I go, well, that's idiotic. The point of hockey is not about nine to eight games. Here are all the reasons why a 3-2 hockey game has so much value. For me, a core fan. And that would go away if suddenly the goal is twice as big and it's this strange hybrid of a huge soccer goal but played on ice. That's not something that I want. That's not what a core fan wants. But a hypothetical one, they go, maybe I'd be more interested if that was the case. Or maybe if there were no goalies, if it was just six skaters out there, maybe that would be more fun. The core fan goes, what are you talking about? This is insane. Hockey is awesome because goals are so meaningful and because they are hard to come by and yet there's action constantly going. Me, the core fan says, the action of hockey is its greatest value. Back and forth, flying 100 miles an hour and... People who aren't fans of the game, they associate action with goals. And I say, that's not the case. A goal, that's great. That's tied into that. But there are so many things that make hockey action-packed and enjoyable at at this very high speed that have nothing to do with goals. And the core fan, I love that. And that would be altered drastically if you incorporated some of these ideas that a hypothetical fan would have. You know, let's just allow maximum fighting so everybody can pound each other uh, all the time. I've heard that spoken about. And I go, well, I don't, I'm not here to watch boxing. I like that hockey incorporates fighting. And I like certain aspects of that violence that hockey provides. But I don't want to watch UFC. If I wanted to watch UFC, I would just watch that sport. So baseball is going through this same thing. Because I'm not a core fan of baseball. I'm between that core fan and the hypothetical one. I enjoy watching it in the playoffs. I love the intensity that it brings. The regular season drags. And especially when it comes to pace of play of the game, which I mentioned earlier with soccer, something that it has actually nailed. 
That's one of the biggest problems that me, the, the middle ground man between the core fan and the hypothetical fan, when I watch a regular season game, especially when it gets into summertime and there are no, no other sports, I say, I'll watch baseball because I've, I, I placed a bet on it and I'll have it up while I'm doing some work or when I'm just hanging out here at the office. I like that. I like having it on. The pace of play will drag if I'm just sitting there watching an individual game. And I, I think that the vast majority of core fans and hypothetical fans, if you pulled them, would agree that that's an issue. I don't want to sit there and watch a regular season baseball game, one of 162. I don't want to watch it take four hours. And so Major League Baseball, that's your duty to come in and easily implement things that will improve the pace. You could implement a pitch clock, something that's been experimented with to success in minor leagues and and other leagues that aren't the actual majors. That's a really easy thing that you could introduce. But for whatever reason... I don't know if Major League Baseball thinks that it would alienate their core fans. They're strangely hesitant to implement something like this. So again, it always comes back to this balance. How do you find a balance between the past and the future? How do you find a balance between what the core fan wants and what the hypothetical fan that you're trying to attract to your game wants? Those are really, really hard and in a small percentage, they are answerable questions. And for the other larger percentage, they're kind of unanswerable until you try them and find out. So I'm going to read two quotes back to back that tie into this pace of play and baseball and where it is and where it's headed. The first one comes from Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated. Last season set per game records for highest strikeout rate for a 15th straight year, 23.4%. It also set per-game records for most pitchers, 8.9, most hit batters, 0.92, fewest sacrifice hits, 0.14, and length of nine-inning games, three hours and seven minutes. Batting average last season, 245, and stolen bases the past two seasons, 0.94 and 0.98, sunk to their lowest rates since 1972, end quote. And then this from ESPN. The players on the field have never been more talented, but increased velocity from pitchers has led to record strikeout totals and low batting averages. There is new generation of stars emerging, but with every bat flip comes another conversation about whether it violates the unwritten rules. Major League Baseball is exploring new rules that could help solve its pace of play issues, but is also balancing ways to appeal to to traditionalists hesitant to embrace change. End quote. Bat flips, new generation of stars. I hear those things and Fernando Tatis Jr. comes to mind, the electric star of the San Diego Padres. New up-and-comer who last year is playing against the Rangers and on a 3-0 count, up by seven runs in the game, he swings and blasts a grand slam over the fences. And people freak out because this is one of those unwritten rules that we can't really understand why they exist, and I'm not even sure who believes in them. And yet both managers come out after the game and say that's not acceptable. And you have past players weighing in on, yes, you should do that, or no, that's a big deal. No, you shouldn't. Keith Hernandez is weighing in saying, you can swing on a 3-1 count and bash that grand slam, but never on a 3-0. And you think about a hypothetical fan and they go, 
what the hell are you talking about? None of this makes sense. I would never be attracted to a sport that tries to temper its very best players from doing things at the very highest level. Fernando Tatis Jr., he plays the game of baseball with joy. Something that I've recorded two different episodes about of No Baller when it comes to Steph Curry in basketball and why I'm so drawn to him and why his style of play is very unique because every single game seems like a celebration of his love for basketball. He goes and scores close to 50 points yesterday against Memphis to clinch the eight spot in the play-in. And Steph is just running around the court, exuding this joy that is so fun to watch. And all NBA fans love it and they celebrate it. And yet Fernando Tatis Jr., he's constantly in the middle of these controversies because he hit a grand slam. Because when he smashes a home run, he'll flip his bat sometimes. A big no-no in the unwritten baseball rules rule book. And this is where baseball gets a little bit lost because I don't know how many core fans are abiding by these principles and like that about the game. And I do know that a lot of hypothetical fans or that middle ground, someone like me, I do know that they're very turned off by the idea that baseball is trying to temper what their stars can do and what they can celebrate. And the idea that you don't want your very best players to hit a grand slam in a game that people are paying money to watch and have money riding on the outcome and all the things that we, we have when it comes to sports. That idea seems insane. Common logic would say that if you have stars that are recognizable and electric, you turn your league over to them and you say, take us down whatever avenue you want. The NBA says, LeBron, here. Curry, here. Durant, here. Go. Go and play basketball in the manners that you always play. And we will market around that because people will want that without fail. The NFL says, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, here. Take the league and go. And that's how we're going to make unlimited amounts of money because people want to watch you do that. The NHL says, Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, here. Take the league, go. Every sports league wants that and should want that. And yet baseball and the fans, real and hypothetical, they're kind of at war with one another over what their stars should be doing on the field and what kind of unwritten rules are being violated and whether those rules even exist. And it's just this murky haze that turns off people inside the game and outside of it. And so then it comes back to the theme of this entire show and the theme of change and how do you find the very best manner to evolve. On the one level, baseball has some very clearly identifiable problems that seem easy to answer. Pace of play would be most notable when it comes to my opinion. Put on a pitch clock, make... Just don't allow batters to step out of the box and readjust their gloves and their, and their groin for two minutes before a pitch. Nobody really wants to watch that. We want to see baseball be played. You can step in and, and change some rules that will easily solve that, and yet baseball has been hesitant to do so. 
on the other side of the equation, it's a lot harder to find answers. And indeed, to quote Jeff Passan, maybe near impossible. When you try to find that balance between the soulful nostalgia of the past and for baseball, kind of the soulless, number-filled present. So that cold, analytical style of baseball that has really risen. So all of this comes down to two questions that apply to every sport, including baseball. How do you find balance between history and future? And is that even possible? Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.